1: please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of pop culture and Judaism. As always, I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky, along with my friend, colleague, and fellow fanboy, Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we are going to talk about the new film by Sam Mendes, 1917. Uh, 1917 focuses on a single mission during World War One, the war to end all wars. Uh, it came out uh, nationwide after it won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. It was only out in limited release before the Golden Globes happened. And I think the Golden Globe win may have catapulted it. Uh, to this position uh, of being a popular movie that many want to see. I'll turn it over to you first, Mike, to tell us a little bit about the film. Yeah. Uh, so
0: 1917, as you said, was, is a film by Sam Mendes, Mendes who uh, um, is best known for films like American Beauty, which I think was his debut film, and um, Skyfall and several other James Bond, recent James Bond movies. Uh, some of the best James Bond movies. Uh, and so he's an accomplished filmmaker. And this is a uh, very personal story to him. It, uh, it uh, purportedly comes from uh, stories that uh, his grandfather, who was a soldier during World War I, uh, came back to tell him. And so the the story um, uh, is technologically uh, pretty marvelous. The artistry of it is, is pretty marvelous, as we'll discuss. It, uh, it, it uh, at least has the artifice of being a... a uh, a war movie done in one single shot, so the camera is always moving and always following uh, the two main characters, uh, two young British soldiers, uh, Schofield, who's played by George McKay, uh, and Blake, who's played by uh, Dean Charles Chapman. Uh, and they are given uh, a seemingly impossible mission uh, to uh, to uh, make it across enemy lines, uh, and to, uh, to to travel uh, long distance in, in war-torn France uh, by daybreak the next day uh, to deliver a message that will stop a deadly attack on hundreds of soldiers, uh, Blake's own brother among them. Uh, and uh, so it's a it's a race against time. Uh, it is a, a story of uh, of quest and uh, and. Uh, danger and heroism on the part of these two young soldiers so it's a it's a war movie but unlike other war movies that that really kind of focus on the on on the on the grandeur and the uh, chaos of war um this really focuses on uh zooms in on the experience of two soldiers on this one particular mission uh in one of the largest uh and bloodiest conflicts in in human history. Jesse, what did you think of the movie?
1: You know, I I thought the way it was filmed, first of all, was uh, incredible to watch. The cinematography was stunning. Um, It was filmed mostly with uh, these long, continuous shots, so it looked like it was one single uh, scene that we were watching the entire time, You saw a lot of that with Schofield and Blake constantly walking, walking through the trenches like a maze, um, which I think we could get into is really an analogy of um, how we are like these mice in a maze uh, during periods of war. Um, But I I thought the cinematography was really incredible, how it showed us walking along with them on this mission. They never stopped. They never stood still. There was never really a transition from one scene to the next. It was one constant scene, or at least portrayed that way. A couple things that really stood out to me... uh, George McKay and Dean Charles Chapman, I don't really know as actors. I thought they were good, but they were not familiar to me. I, I found it really fascinating and I believe very intentional that um, the film was really bookended by Colin Firth, uh, who played General Aaron Moore, and Benedict Cumberpatch, who played Colonel McKenzie. Right? They were the, the, the two higher-ups of the The military. Those were the two faces that we recognize as well-known actors, and they each had five lines, right? One at the very beginning, uh, sending them on this assignment, and one at the very end, uh, who they were supposed to find to uh, prevent the British military from being set up, really, from this booby trap. And what it really shows me is that Well, they were those who were well-known. It was the foot soldiers, right? It it was Lance Corporal Schofield. It was Lance Corporal Blake. They were the ones whose lives were on the line. These were the ones whose names we don't know, whose names we don't remember. But they were the ones who were impacted most, not the well-known familiar faces in the higher-up military ranks. I also, you know, this is uh, believed to be a true story. As you said, Sam Mendes heard it from his grandfather Um, I found it fascinating that Lance Corporal Blake, these are all spoiler lists, we should have said at the beginning, I thought he was the main character of the film, right? General Aramore tells him to go do this mission in order to save his brother. About halfway through the film, he dies. And you don't think that's going to happen because Schofield almost dies and he ends up saving Schofield's life, but he's the one who ends up dying. He's stabbed by a German pilot, whose plane crashes in the barn that they were walking through during this dogfight. And because Blake is a good guy and the, and the plane is on fire, he pulls the German pilot out so he doesn't burn to death. And the German pilot ends up stabbing Blake and Blake dies. That, that was really gut-wrenching because you expect he's the main character and this is his story. And sometimes even when it's our story, we're not around to tell our story. I thought also, uh, from a cinematography perspective, the gruesome nature, I, I was cringing most of the film when you saw rats crawling around, when you saw corpse and dead bodies just lying around, and they weren't even shocking to these soldiers. They were just background, And, and I think that also speaks really to the realities of war, especially World War One. which, Mike, I know you want to talk about how this really changed... Um, the way war um, was fought and really changed the p- the planet and our country's relationship with other countries still 100 years later. But it's just this accepted nature that you're just going to have these piles and piles of dead bodies, and they're not even shocked by them. They just keep going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that I want <clears throat> to... Uh, highlight a couple of things that 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 you uh, mentioned. Uh, also, just in my reaction to the film. Um, so uh, Blake and Schofield, uh, uh, um, those characters and and the actors who played them. Like you said, they were not the the big names uh, that ended up having bit parts in the movie, uh, like uh, um, like Andrew Scott, like Benedict Cumberpatch, uh, like Colin Firth, Richard Madden. Um, but George McCain, Jar- Dean Charles Chapman, uh, I thought, put in. Uh, excellent performances uh, in, in this role, and what Sam Mendes does here is, um, you know, shows war uh, through the eyes of uh, basically two nobodies, uh, and uh, and you know they're, they're in some sense nobody actors, although you know I don't mean that pejoratively for them because they're they're just not very well known yet. Although I did spend it was one of those moments where I spent like the whole movie wondering where I had seen Dean Charles Chapman. And then after I saw it, I went and looked and, and realized, oh, yes, he's uh, Tom and Baratheon, first of his name, uh, king of the Andals and the First Men and protector of the seven realms. So uh, from Game of Thrones, of course. So uh, so that's uh, how you might know Dean Charles Chapman. Um, but I, but I think it, it shows, you know, usually in, in war movies and in in learning about war, you think about, you know, the, the, the kings and the presidents and uh, and the prime ministers and and the generals and the admirals, right? Do you think of, you know, Patton uh, and Eisenhower? You know, um, in, in a sense, Saving Private Ryan uh, from Steven Spielberg kind of changed how Hollywood thinks about uh, war movies. And that's uh, uh, really influenced uh, by, you know, by, uh, by works like People's History of the United States and things like that, where, where you really kind of look at history through the prism of the regular people who are experiencing it uh, and who are contributing to it, uh, and so this movie does that too. And I think that that's also worth us noting, worth us talking about. One of the points I think the larger points that the movie was making uh, that you know decisions about war um, are often made uh, with uh, uh, with a, uh, at least a degree of ru- uh, of distance uh, from the the impacts of of those wars. That's that's even more. True today, in some ways, when, when war is often done uh, without boots on the ground, without you know uh, soldiers in trenches, uh, you know, fighting for inches uh, in a battlefield, uh, but is uh, but but is you know done you know through uh, through through computerized drones uh, that are controlled you know that uh, 2, 000, 3, 000, 10, 000 miles away, um, uh, and uh, and so the ramifications of war. Um, are are much more removed in our time than they were uh, even in that time. But still, even in that time, uh, you know, the Colin Firth uh, is in the trench making the decision. Um, but he is not the one who has to uh, you know uh, cross enemy lines uh, in hostile territory to go and give the message to uh, to to the other uh, uh, to the other uh, uh, officer. Um, to the colonel, to Colonel McKenzie Ben, who ends up being Benedict Cumberpatch, uh, who who uh, to call off the strike. Benedict Cumberpatch, um, similarly, or, or Colonel McKenzie similarly, uh, you know, isn't on the front lines, isn't in the waves of soldiers uh, uh, waging the attack against the Germans. Right, they're um, the ones so, who are in
1: bunkers the whole time. Right, right. right they're they're the, the safest parts of those trenches. Right,
0: and all, and all the more so, you know, the, they're not the. They're not the you know the the kings and the and the kaisers and the prime ministers and, and people like that who are who are making the decisions to send these people off to war you know so um, uh, so I think that that is uh, you know a, a very intentional artistic choice that Sam Mendes made and a a moral argument that Sam Mendes is making so I think that's that's worth us holding often in the conversation about this uh, is that the you know the impact of war on uh, the on on the average people. Uh, who are are fighting it uh, and uh, impacted by it? You know, you see that in the course of the movie too, uh, where uh, um, after uh, Lance Corporal Blake dies uh, and Lance Corporal Scofield Skol- has to continue this mission, mission by himself, uh, he is uh, passing through this. Um, this shell of a uh, of a town uh, in France called a, a coast is that right, Jesse? I believe so. Yeah, and uh, and there you know it's essentially I mean it, it's it's essentially been eviscerated by the war. Uh, but uh, um, Schofield makes his way uh, into you know kind of a basement uh, um, to hide from a, an enemy soldier, um, and when he gets down there, he finds a Single young woman uh, with, as it turns out, a baby. Uh, and as you know, as as the conversation goes on, uh, he learns that the that the baby is not hers. It's an orphan baby that she ends up taking care of because probably the baby's parents died, and everybody that she's ever known uh, died. Where right? she says to him, "Like there's, but she doesn't for you even here. know who the mother is." Right. Right. Exactly. You know. So, um, so we we really are confronted. Uh, with the uh, with with uh, in in this very intimate way, um, with the with with the uh, with the real human cost of, of war in a way that I honestly don't really remember seeing in um, in, in in a movie um, in, in quite some time, if if maybe ever. Um, and so I, I found it really really haunting uh, and and really powerful. Like you said, the cinematography was beautiful the landscapes that were shown the quest that they were on was was brutal uh and you could sense that how they put in like i said great performances um as these average guys um in, in in part of this grander larger conflict um and uh like you said it was it was gruesome uh and i think that uh, sam mendes uh, used that uh to uh, to great effect right it was it was gruesome uh but the gruesomeness was kind of like the the scenery uh you know the scenery of war is the gore uh and uh um right whereas most war movies that's the action of the war is the gore for for this film the gore was the backdrop uh and and, the, and, and the, I, I
1: think what stands out is not just the, the the gore um right so this is the great war the war to end all wars uh really one of the bloodiest if not the bloodiest wars in this planet's history,
0: right? Something, um, like 20, something like twenty million deaths, including soldiers and civilians,
1: right? Due to resulting genocide that came from it and all that. And what's fascinating about this film is it's not like a happily ever after, right? It's not that Mike. You and I spoke about this immediately after seeing the film that. It's not, okay, they stopped the, the soldiers from, from going out there and uh, from falling into this trap by the Germans, but that didn't stop evil. Right? This was movie takes place, uh, I think, right, April 6, 1917, which, as you noted oh. to me, what was the, actually the day that the United States entered World War I, I believe. But oh. the war lasted for another year. Uh, right that's right,
0: right. And, you know th- so you know not uh, and I, and i I wondered you know w- what might be because I have to imagine that that was intentional on the part of Sam mendes to to set this story on the day the Americans declare war, and I, I think that that it really it really strikes to that point jesse that um that Schofield may have stopped you know a couple thousand British soldiers from getting ambushed by the Germans and saved their lives, um but the war was in some ways, just about to deepen and broaden uh, and uh, and cost so many thousands more lives.
1: Absolutely. And I think that speaks to, reminds us of um, the pains and consequences of war that we don't always think about. Um, right? And, and certainly that the the higher ups, not just the elected officials or the kings or the presidents or the prime ministers, but even the Benedict Cumberpatches and Colin Firths—right, those who were the military personnel—they were not the foot soldiers. They were not the first wave or second wave or third wave, fourth wave who were running uh, into the battlefields. Right,
0: and you know and there was a, there were there were a couple of lines uh, during the course of the movie that I thought really kind of underscored that message. So the, the first was, you know, as uh, Schofield, after uh, Blake dies, I um, mean, as Schofield is, is uh, continuing the, um, the, the mission uh, by himself, he runs into a, a, a British captain and, and his company um, played by Mark Strong named Captain Smith. And, and Smith says, when you get to Colonel McKenzie, make sure that there are other people around when you deliver the message, make sure there are witnesses, uh, because if there are not, um, he's going to just ignore what he he, he might just ignore what you say uh, because some men just want the fight, right and yeah. uh, and and you see that you know that that I think is uh, in part an argument about the not only World War one, which in in you know uh, according to many historians, is really uh, a profoundly unnecessary war uh, that uh, that is the result of um, uh, you know, of the, the unintended consequences of certain alliances and the instability and militancy that had been proliferating in Europe uh, during that time. Right? In other words, you know, World War I in some way happens because, you know, some men just want to fight. Uh, but, and, and uh, all
1: of those alliances, right, my understanding is all those alliances came from um, an Austro-Hungarian Archduke being assassinated in Sarajevo uh, and that one assassination led to all these countries getting involved and choosing teams, choosing their alliances, and all of them being involved in war.
0: Correct, and, and- one of the reasons uh, that we wanted to uh, talk about this movie right now is because, uh, as, as our listeners no doubt know, you know, uh, the United States and Iran, uh, and maybe the entire world, on, on, uh, if, if things were to spiral out of control, um, was uh, in previous weeks uh, um, on the brink of of war over the past few weeks on the brink of war, uh, in part because of a uh, of a political assassination. Uh, you could call it maybe one or two different things, uh, but that's the that's the that's the sense of it. So you know it it, um, it, it we are always sort of on the precipice of this history uh, repeating itself. Now that's not necessarily getting into you know, the morality of the American action against uh, Qasem Soleimani uh, and, uh, and and what uh, uh, would or should happen uh, between the United States and Iran. Uh, but we're in a moment right now where, where, um, where we're all sort of on the edge of our seats about the po- possibility of another war. Uh, and so uh, this movie, uh, I think, uh, offers a, a window and an insight, or at least a springboard into a conversation about uh, about the moment that we're in currently, the one other thing I wanted to mention, Jesse, is you know when um, when uh, Schofield gets to Colonel Mackenzie uh, and uh, gives him the order, you know Mackenzie, after some back and forth about it, ends up calling off the attack um, and therefore you know saving the troops. but uh, he Mackenzie points out you know that okay, fine, i'm going to call off this attack, um, but it's not going to stop the war. There's only one way this war ends, he says, and that is the last person standing. And you get the sense by watching this movie that you know, that might as well be a literal statement, right? That, that maybe everyone in the world is going to die as a result of this war. And the only way it's going to end is that there might be one person left and that person will be the winner. But also, on some sense, in some sense, the loser, because um, you know, uh, what, what is that one person going to do? with a world that has been destroyed. And you literally see that in the movie too, the, the, the cost of the war on the natural landscape. That's something Jewishly that we want to talk about too. Um, so a, a decimated world with no one in it, uh, and you might be the last person standing, but what have you really won? You know, it's a, a pre- and you see that even at the end is the, the attack is called off and they're bringing in all of the um, wounded bodies that have been decimated. Uh, in just this one attack, right? And, and uh, um, you start to see the um, the, the, the horror uh, and the futility even in this victory.
1: Yeah, I think, Mike, you make a good point when you bring up the recent uh, uh, killing of Qasem Soleimani, um, who was a terrorist, right? Who... Right killed many innocent people. Um, and what we're talking about is not whether or not he, reserved, he deserved to die. That's actually not up for me. As a as a Jew, I believe that's up to God, not up to humanity. But what I think happened in the case of the killing of, of Soleimani is that the ripple effect wasn't taken into consideration. If the assassination of a single archduke uh, of Austria-Hungary led to World War I and led to these alliances, you have no idea what the ripple effect will be. And that ripple effect doesn't necessarily impact those in positions of power. The ripple effect impacts uh, those who are have their feet on the ground, those um, who are members of the military, and in many cases, in the way warfare works today, innocent civilians as well, they're the ones. We're the ones potentially who are are impacted most, and that's really what makes war so scary and arguably so unnecessary.
0: Right. I think that's a, maybe a good springboard to to bring in uh, some Jewish values into the conversation here, uh, because uh, you know I I I, I think that uh, that that, Jew, that Jewish tradition would have a complex relationship uh, with. Um, uh, with with you know preempted military action and targeted assassinations, you know the, uh, the the principle of preemption in Judaism is kind of related to this idea in the Talmud that says Habala uh, Harogcha Hargo right? So that if someone comes to kill you, you should rise up first to kill them. But um, that principle, in my estimation, is predicated on uh, on the imminent threat. Um, that, the, that, the, that the hostile uh, person represents, right? So uh, in the case of Qasem Soleimani, you know, the, the, the uh, Trump administration has, has tried somewhat, I think, unsuccessfully to make this argument because they haven't really presented uh, uh, any substantive evidence uh, um, of it, that they, they caught Soleimani, you know, en route to carry out an attack against American interests Uh, And, you know, if that were true, uh, then it is possible that, you know, that kind of uh, killing might be justified. Um, Although, you know, like you pointed out, um, you know, the principle, uh, um, you know, doesn't tell us really anything about the morality of collateral damage. Um, If, you know, if if you're going to uh, take out the person who means to do you harm, Um, That doesn't necessarily give you license to do it if, you know, what you're if the if the attack that you're going to do uh, is going to result in wider casualties or spiral out of control into a wider war.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what's rabbinic tradition does with regards to war and warfare, as you said, if we want to bring in the text of our tradition, it makes it clear that there's really no such thing as a Milchamed Chovah, right? That Rabbi Yehuda in in Mishnah Sota talks about these necessary wars. Um, However, the vast majority of the rabbis respond and said, actually, they're that war is actually a milchemet reshut, right? It's a war at our own discretion. Uh, It's not necessary. It's not obligatory. And those discretionary wars then, which they deem just about every war, a leader cannot decide for themselves. It's not up to the leader who is the one who is uh, in the shelters, safe, Protected, not having their feet on the ground, not putting their lives at risk. It's not up to them to decide whether or not we go to war. Uh, Masechet Sanhedrin says clearly that that leader must go to the Sanhedrin, must go to the Rabbinic court to get permission and authority in order to begin war.
0: Right, and, and you know, and you could you could make the argument, you know, uh, that the, the Rabbis, the Talmud, you know, are, are um, uh, are, are first of all, you know, writing from uh, uh, from a perspective um, several centuries uh, after uh, the the last convening of, of a Sanhedrin, uh, and many centuries after there was actually uh, any uh, Jewish uh, sovereign nation with a with a, with a, with a Davidic king uh, who they uh, uh, presuppose is the uh, only person authorized. Even if the Sanhedrin were to agree, um, it would need to be a sovereign Davidic king uh, over Israel who get to make the decision. So, uh, my teacher Rabbi Arya Cohen are, argues that what the Talmudic rabbis are doing are are, are effectively, you know, putting uh, um, that sort of war in the realm of mythology. Right? That 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 uh, not only uh, is it uh, implausible uh, and unlikely that such a war would be permitted, uh, but really. Uh, impossible uh, from the context that they were writing in. In other words, the, the rabbis of the Talmud are saying that uh, that any war not fought for the sake of uh, uh, immediate, uh, apparent, and present self-defense uh, is, is a forbidden war.
1: I, I think, not to go on too much of a tangent, but the Talmud often... Uh, Is stuck between this rock and a hard place, right? The rabbis of the Talmud see Torah as God's word, and so they can't change it. They can't ignore it. Um, They say this is, they have to take this as fact, but time and time again, they create a system, really a theoretical system, because they're living in exile, so they don't have the authority or autonomy to enact that system, but they create a system which makes it seemingly impossible for those laws of Torah that have to do with life and death to ever be enacted. Uh, Maseka Sanhedrin also deals a great deal with capital punishments and the death penalty. And they say the death penalty was permitted, but they create a system where it was seemingly impossible for the Sanhedrin to ever, even if it was still in existence, to ever... Um, or any rabbinic courts, convict somebody and sentence somebody to death. I think they were very careful in understanding the heavy weight and burden that was upon their shoulders that if they were giving the okay to determine if somebody shall live or somebody shall die, they wanted to create a system where they never had to deal with that weight and that guilt and that burden that blood was on their hands. Right. That, you know, and,
0: and, and, and there in, in, uh, in, in uh, Tractate Sunheader in the Talmud, too, that, you know, they, the rabbis uh, already in the Mishnah offer this, this you know, extremely famous teaching uh, that, you know, why, did, why, did, why in Genesis does God create uh, uh, one human being at the onset? Um, it's to teach that, uh, that uh, whosoever destroys a life destroys an entire world, and whosoever saves a life saves an entire world. Now, when you when you translate into that into the realm of war, um, that's actually a really complicated teaching because, you know, sometimes you might want to uh, engage in a war in order to save life. Right. So, you know, World War II arguably um, is is an is an example of, of this, right, that uh, that, you know, that, uh, that that war is fought in order to stop a bloodthirsty regime uh, from, you know, from decimating a continent um, and annihilating a, a, a race of people. Um, uh, but also, you know, in the context of war, right, it inevitably involves death. And when you take a life, you, you destroy an entire world. So, the, so it, you know, I, I think Jewish tradition has a, uh, especially rabbinic tradition, has a complicated relationship with war. Uh, the Torah, on the other hand, um, uh, has a little bit less of a conflicted relationship with war. You know, there's war present throughout the Torah. Sometimes it's kind of noted as a as a simple you know fact and as a reality of human life, um, sometimes the uh, the the Israelites are are commanded in the Torah to engage in wars, uh, uh, even in, in such a way that 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 made the rabbis and, and I think would make us uh, profoundly uncomfortable, like the the you know wars uh, um, that are commanded against the seven Canaanite nations um, that that essentially call for what we would identify today as genocide against the seven Canaanite nations, the, the perpetual war against the Malik uh, and so on. So the Torah commands those things. On the other hand, the Torah um, also says that, uh, that when you approach a city to, or approach a, a nation to make war against it, you have to offer them terms of peace first. And only if they reject the terms of peace um, is a war permitted. Uh, the Torah also has, uh, has, has rules of engagement about war right what the israeli army today uh calls torah neshek purity of arms now the torah um, isn't quite as extreme um uh, uh in its uh principles of purity of arms as modern uh state of israel is um but nevertheless lays the groundwork for that idea that uh, that 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 the jewish way in war is not anything goes that that there are limits to what soldiers are permitted and allowed to do, uh, on the battlefield. Uh, that, that plays out in this movie too, right? That, uh, that Blake dies because he goes to help the, a German pilot who has just crash landed. Uh, and, and you see both Blake's altruism and his purity of arms in, in doing that and in his heroism, uh, and also the risk he takes on by doing that because, um, uh, you know, uh, Engaging in wars uh, with with a sense of the, uh, of your own personal morality when your enemy may not share that is incredibly risky. so um, so the movie, I think that you know really really underscores that, and then finally, the Torah says not only do we engage in war in, in, uh, in ethical manners uh, at, you know a, r- with, with certain parameters, uh, but also uh, that those ethics don't only extend to our treatment of uh, civilians and combatants, uh, but also extend to our treatment of the, uh, of the landscape, too, of, of plant life, right? We're not allowed to uh, cut down trees unnecessarily uh, in the context of war, a principle that gets uh, applied in later Jewish law beyond the uh, context of war uh, to talk about our responsibility not to, uh, not to not to waste natural resources, so a principle called baltashli. You see that in the movie. The, I said right where
1: they they were the landscape was destroyed. They were right. cutting down trees to create blockades in the road. They were shooting and killing cattle just to prevent the their enemies from finding that cow and slaughtering it if they needed food to eat. Uh, they were destroying the land unnecessarily uh, and. It is a reminder, I believe, that if we are all God's creatures and creations, and this world is a world that God created, what happens when those made in God's image kill those made in God's image? We end up destroying this world that God created. Right. I want to go back, Mike, to something that you said as well um, about how the Torah uh, makes its clear that one needs to approach uh, another people and ask for peace, give them terms of peace before they go to war, that war is really a last result, it should never be the first result. Uh, go Again, the, the Talmud, which is very different than Torah, and I think we need to make it clear, well, Torah is our guide, we're very much a rabbinic-based religion. Um, right. uh, Two thousand years of interpretation of what Torah says but the Talmud makes it clear that all the the rules about war and uh, laws about concerning war, the what they deem, right, this milchemet chovah, this obligatory war, only referred to that initial entering of the the lands. That every war that came after that, they deemed the milchemet Reshut a discretionary war. And I think, again, that goes back to the way they deal with the complicated nature of our texts, and the rabbis of the Talmud are trying to create a culture, institution, and a faith that is much more pacifist than the Torah leads us to believe. Right.
0: You know, I, I, um, it's, uh, it's amazing to have this conversation with you, Jesse, because um, I, I don't know if you hold this memory, but I uh, remember very distinctly, um, uh, disclosure to the readers, as you know, Jesse and I have been friends for a, a long time, uh, and we were uh, not only uh, uh, classmates in college, uh, but we were also fraternity brothers. Uh, and, uh, and we, along with a, a handful of other fraternity brothers, uh, went down to uh, Florida for spring break one uh in in 2003 uh yeah. and and i remember uh, while we were there uh watching with you uh the 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 televised beginning of the war with iraq in, in 2003 um and um you know it, and it it i, I remember that th- that was the first instance in really in, in which really i i i had ever really seriously engaged with or confronted uh jewish texts and traditions uh, related to war, uh, because it was uh, the the first, you know, aside from Afghanistan, um, which uh, which I I don't remember as as significant um, a conversation within the Jewish community or the wider community um, about the morality of engaging war in Afghanistan. I think that that we ended up giving um, our elected leaders a lot of leeway, arguably too much leeway uh, in in engaging that war after 9-11. Um, but I, the, but the public and therefore the Jewish community was was much more conflicted about the about the morality of the war in Iraq. I, I, I know I can speak for myself personally uh, that uh, that that I uh, was uh, both from an American perspective and from a Jewish perspective was was against that war uh, and active uh, in anti-war efforts. Uh, you know, before that war even even started, uh, and in part because. Um, I was mindful in large part because I was mindful of, uh, of these, of these Jewish traditions, uh, around, around war, um, that, uh, you know, but, but also, um, our political leadership, I think was in some way mindful there, there, that are, these traditions that we have about war are, are pretty influential. The notion that you could only go to war, uh, in, in our time, if, if there's a, a clear and present self-defense need, um. You know the the administration was trying to make the arguments that that there was, even though uh, it was pretty apparent to me and to many others at the time uh, that uh, that 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 threshold hadn't been met and and that there was some uh, uh, either inaccuracy or, or deception going on about it.
1: Yeah, I remember that well. We were sitting um, in the living room of the house that a bunch of us rented and watching. Um, bombs being dropped over Baghdad live on TV like we were watching a movie or this was a video game. And again, it speaks to those who are making these decisions not really thinking about the casualties of war. Uh, I appreciate at least then um, there was a congressional vote to authorize the war with Iraq. Um, That vote has since been uh, debated and used against many political leaders about uh, who voted for it Um, because now I think history shows us that that we should have never gone to war Uh, and those votes for that war with Iraq are really being questioned uh, in a political environment. But that links back to this idea that you needed Sanhedrin approval to go to war from a Jewish perspective, that one person should never have the ability to decide for themselves that they can start a war with another nation. Uh, Because especially when that is a person whose life is not at risk as a result of that war... Um, I wonder, Mike, what do you make of all of our texts? You know, the Torah does talk about war and ethics of war, but so much of our texts, especially rabbinic texts, focus on the idea for peace. So much of our liturgy focuses on peace um, multiple times a day. In the Aramaic text, right, the Kaddish, which we say as punctuation at different points throughout the service, we conclude with the command say Shalom Bimur Mav Hu Yasei Shalom Aleinu vel Kol Yisrael, Uh, that God should bring peace upon us, upon all God's people, upon all who dwell on this earth. Uh, What does it mean that we have these rules and ethics about war, but we're constantly talking about and striving for peace?
0: It's a really great question. Uh, And uh, I think that that our Condition, you know, is, is realistic in a sense, right? You know, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the, the kind of twin passages in Deuteronomy uh, that say, um, there shall be no needy among you. Uh, and then, you know, a verse or two later says, uh, there, there shall always be needy among you, right? So it holds out this, this ideal um, that we should be striving for, which is peace, but recognizes the reality that, that human beings come into conflict. And so I think that that um, that remembering that our ideal is peace um, is uh, illustrative and informative in those moments in which we need to engage in conflict. Right? That 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 conflict it, when it happens should be first of all a last resort when peace is not possible. Uh, that and that it should be in the service of uh, of, of, of building a world of shalom, a world of, of wholeness and, and peace. And I, I think that there's a, a couple of points I want to make about that. You know, The first is, I think that every human being, regardless of, of background or tradition, maybe not every human being, but the vast preponderance of humanity um, wants peace. Any sane person wants peace. But the question is always, you know, peace at what cost and peace on whose terms. Uh, and so, you know, the Jewish tradition doesn't only say that there should be peace, but also has a vision for what that peace uh, ought to look like what's the world of shalom that we're that we're trying to build right so there's there's a way of of achieving peace that is you know in in the sense of the you know um, uh, you know neville chamberlain you know peace in our time uh, kind of peace, which is you know we're going to just let the Nazis do whatever they want, uh, and in that sense we'll have peace because we're not going to be at war. but I don't think that the Jewish tradition uh, has that vision. Of what peace is. Um, I think it has a, a vision of peace that is about uh, justice, that's about inclusivity, um, that is about uh, uh, human harmony. Uh, and, and so that's the kind of peace we ought to be building toward, sometimes building toward that peace is going to necessitate conflict um, or, or self-defense, uh, and that we shouldn't necessarily, you know, we, that, that we shouldn't inherently shy away from that, um uh, but we but we always have to keep in mind the, the vision of what we're going for. So peace in Judaism is not merely the absence of conflict. Um, it is the presence of uh, of something
1: bigger uh,
0: and, uh, and and more holistic than that.
1: And I think rabbinic Judaism suggests that we cannot wait for peace to come, right? One of the well-known teachings uh, of Mishnah votes that we should be dis- disciples of Aaron. Uh, we should love peace and pursue peace. This idea of being the death, uh, we don't just wait around for things to happen. We're told tzedek tzedek tir dof in the Torah. We don't just wait for justice to happen. We run towards it. We pursue it. We make a just society. Similarly, we can't just... You know, sit on our hands and wait for that peaceful world. We can't just wait for Mashiach or yemeh Mashiach, that messianic era when there will be peace in this world. Mm-hmm. If we're disciples of Aaron, we need to make peace happen. Uh, and I think it's also fascinating that the rabbis choose to choose Aaron as that example Um right the The leadership of Aaron and Moses was not the military reign of the people of Israel. The, when Moses transitions um, and his power, God's power, the the God's spirit transitions from Moses to Joshua, Joshua is the military leader that the Israelites need uh, as they enter the land of Israel, and they enter the promised land and end up going to war. And yet, we're told, be like Aaron. Aaron was the spiritual leader of the people of Israel. And where do we find peace? We find peace by deepening our connection to God, I believe, that Aaron had a connection, ritually speaking, at least, in a way that Moses didn't or others didn't. When we deepen our connection to God, then we see how precious life is, and we see how each life, no matter how good or evil a person is, is also one of God's creations. And that is why we should strive for peace among all peoples and all nations.
0: Right, I think that's a, that's a really great point. Uh, you know, when um, uh, it, the, the rest of that passage in Pirkei Alvot says that uh, Aaron, you should be as a disciple of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace. Ohem et loving people. Umekorvan la Torah, and bringing right. them close to, to Torah, right? And, uh, and, and that uh, echoes uh, a, a vision of uh, in in the prophets Isaiah and Micah especially uh, that talk about you know the the uh, a perfected peaceful world uh, uh, in in times to come and you know w- one of the things they say about that time is ki mitsyon teze Torah uh, udbara uh, daniyur Shalayin that uh, from uh, from uh, Torah will come forth from Zion. Uh, and the word of God from Jerusalem, uh, and uh, you know, and, and what they I think mean by that is that uh, in uh, in a state of peace, um, Torah, which uh, which uh, uh, in, in instructs not only how we align ourselves and come close to God, but also um, uh, how we create a society in which there is administrative justice and distributive justice and also unrestrained compassion uh, that that is uh, the society that we're working to build but it has to be built right you have to uh, you have to uh, build a, a world in, in Torah's image. Um, it doesn't just happen.
1: Absolutely that we need to be God's partners in creation. Um, the reality of peace, though, I think is an interesting one. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, of blessed memory, who is very much a, a peacenik, right? He not only marched for civil rights, uh, he um, was very vocal um, in protesting the Vietnam War. Uh, he spoke a lot about polarities, And the idea for him was that if we live in a world of polarities, we have all this liturgy uh, about peace and bringing a peaceful world, but we only understand the importance of peace when we've understood the realities of war. Uh, That until we've experienced loss of life and bloodshed, then we don't understand how important peace is. And I think part of the problem, again, is when we live in a society where we have leaders at the top are making decisions about going to war when their lives are not at risk. Their families' lives are not at risk. They're protected. They don't understand why peace is so important. Uh, and, And I'm even talking about a cold peace. I'm not talking about brothers and sisters holding hands and singing Kumbaya, but I'm talking about us living side by side. And when we don't understand the risk of loss of life, when we don't understand the hardship of war, we don't understand the importance of peace. Uh, and really, that's what Heschel's talking about that you only get to peace once you've experienced war. You only uh, appreciate joy when you've experienced sorrow. When he talks about, when he wrote in the reasons for his involvement in the peace movement, he wrote this in 1972 uh, and talked about. Um, the prophets. He said, the more deeply immersed I became in the thinking of the prophets, the more powerfully it became clear to me what the lives of the prophets sought to convey, that morally speaking, there's no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings, that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself, that in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I love... Uh, I love and am always moved uh, and, and challenged by that teaching by uh, from uh, from Heschel and and uh, and that's perhaps a, a good segue to to move toward conclusion. I you know as I, as you were sharing what what Heschel is offering, uh, what Heschel taught, um, my my mind kept on going back to the you know, the very last. Teaching in the Mishnah, we just completed, uh, or the Jewish world, I shouldn't say we, because I uh, uh, fell off the horse about uh, a month in, uh, seven and a half years ago, but the Jewish world just completed the last Daph cycle of studying a page of Talmud every day, uh, and, and has started anew. Jesse, it looks like you're uh, participating in Dafiomi this cycle, and, and I'm trying I, to as well. I'm,
1: I'm trying, I'm, we're, we're about a week and a half in so far.
0: <laughs> yeah, so far so good. Uh, but the, the last Mishnah, uh, even though this Mishnah doesn't have a, a Talmud uh, of its own in Tractate Ukzim, uh, uh, Chapter 3, the very last Mishnah, the very last teaching of the Mishnah, uh, says, uh, That uh, the Holy Blessed One uh, could not find uh, any vessel that would hold a blessing for Israel other than peace. Um, as it says in Psalms, uh, God will grant strength to God's people. God will uh, bless God's people with peace. And so I think that what, what I take from that teaching, this you know, ultimate teaching in, in the Mishnah, uh, is that, um, is that there, there, there's, no, um, uh, there's no ultimate good for the Jewish people. There's no ultimate flourishing for the Jewish people. And, and really, there's no ultimate flourishing for any of us um, uh, without peace. And so therefore it underscores the imperative that, that you were talking about, Jesse, uh, um, both from Heschel to understand the, the horrors and costs of war, and also uh, to be relentless pursuers of peace in the vein of, of Aaron the priest, uh, because uh, there, we, we won't ultimately be able to receive God's blessings uh, unless we uh, succeed in, in building a, a world of peace.
1: Amen. And may we learn from that uh, and may all of us make that our mission um, to be disciples of Aaron, to love peace and pursue it. Amen.
0: Thanks so much for uh, listening to Pop Torah this week. If you are liking the podcast, we ask that you uh, please uh, rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and uh, and spread the word about the great conversation that we're having together about pop culture and Judaism. Uh, Until next time, I am Rabbi Michael Knopf.
1: And I am Rabbi Jesse Olinski. Take care, everyone.